0: Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a morally bankrupt part of the Specgram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins conference room is well-known military strongman Trey Jones. Hi, everybody. To his left is the man who's fluent in funk, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from the balmy shores of Kaffeklubben Island, Bill Sproul. Hey, Today, we have a special guest with us. From Bowling Green University, we have an actual linguologist from the English department and a top-notch con layer to boot, Sherry Wells Jensen. Thanks for joining us, Sherry. Hi there. (laughs) Uh, uh, Many may remember Sherry for her contributions to the print version of SpecGram, including her proposal for a braille encoding for the Klingon alphabet. I have to ask you, Sherry, why do you bother wasting your time writing for the seventh most popular online satirical linguistics magazine in the Inland Empire?
1: I have to get tenure somehow.
0: <laughs> That's probably the best way to do it.
1: Yeah, they buy it. They buy it all. They, they eat the stuff up. Spectrum <laughs> is very respected in the English department. <laughs>
0: that's exactly where i expect (laughs) that's exactly where i expect respect for specgram to come from a lot of specs in there all right well thanks for joining us sherry uh and here we go with more lies damn lies and linguistics uh to get us started i turn it over to trey jones
2: all right everybody i've got three language related items two of them are true one of them is false you guys have to figure out which is which And after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. This time, we have the Battle of the Sexes edition. Ooh. Item number one. In Ringu, an Indonesian language, women use reduplication to indicate emphasis, while men use haplology. Number two. In Island Carib, which is now extinct, the women spoke Arawak, while the men spoke with Arawak grammar but used Carib vocabulary. And number three. In Andi, a Caucasian language, women have to make the distinction between absolutive and ergative cases, while men do not. All right. Who wants to go first?
3: Well, I'll, I'll take a go at it, I guess. Let's see. For the Ringu one, I suspect that may be true because that's the kind of distinction you would potentially guess would happen. <laughs> Number two, again, that sounds possible. You certainly get a lot of cases where the main distinction between, quote, gender dialects, unquote, is vocabulary based. So that would make a certain amount of sense. Number three, the one about Andi, I'm suspicious about for two reasons. One, Andi has two consonants and two vowels. And what kind of Caucasian language has that many vowels for two? That's like a one-to-one ratio. That's just wrong. Number two... What kind of Caucasian language lets anyone get away with not making case distinctions? I think you're supposed to have to make one up every full moon. So I'm going to say number three is the wrong one.
2: All right. Thanks, Bill. Who's next?
3: Well, I'd like to go next, if I
4: might, uh, because I agree with Bill, but except that his reasoning is not quite right. Ringu, the what was it? Women use reduplication. That's got to be it because Deborah Tannen wrote a book about that. You just don't reduplicate me. (laughs) She already. uh, This is a (laughs) well-known fact that uh, that's the difference between men's and women's speech in Ringu. The island Carib one. This is probably true too. This is very typical. It was the the women spoke Arawak, but the men had Arawak grammar and what was it? Carib vocabulary, right? Uh, that's very common in language contact. And, and the real basic reason is that, you know, men can't keep their grammar and their vocabulary unified into a single system. So that's a very common first step in a language contact uh, (laughs) situation. And it's also an easy sort of thing to claim about an extinct language when nobody can prove you wrong. The Andy one, the real problem with this one is that there aren't any ergative systems. Nobody could learn such a system. Mm. And if you think about it, there's no major language that's got one. Th- this is just something that linguists made up to try and fool the general public. And so this one's clearly false.
2: <laughs> All right. Thank you, Keith. Sherry, would you like to go next, or would you like to hear what craziness yeah. David has to say?
1: No, because because I, I I also think that I think that Bill is right, but I think that both of you guys had, are, are, you have are totally the wrong reasons here. So let me, <laughs> So the first one—I don't know that number one is really true. It sounds exactly like something that somebody would put together for a master's thesis when they were sort of desperate. So I don't know that it's true, but I'm thinking it's probably in the literature. Um, and it's exactly that sort of distinction. And number two has got to be true because that's just too much fun. And again, and again, it's somebody's somebody's dissertation. So that's just that's just got to be true. It's one of you'd, nobody's going to check those facts. It's got to be that way, and isn't that fun? has just really got to happen because it makes us happy. And so number three is the one that's not correct. It would just be showing off. I'm sure women could do it, you know, even though it's ebooks even- <laughs> We could pull that off, but it would be seen as showing off and we're just too modest and we don't want to show up the guys. And so we would never do that.
2: <laughs> I like that. All right, David,
0: go ahead. Trey, please read again for me the third one.
2: In Andi, a Caucasian language, women have to make the distinction between absolutive and ergative cases while men do not.
0: Now, there's two ways of doing this. One about making a distinction, and the other is is, is not making a distinction. And the first thing that comes to mind for me, like, uh, for example, is uh, th- this is something that really happens at home all the time, where my wife will say, you know, oh, these are white onions, and these are yellow onions, and I say, well, there's really no distinction between the two. That's just some distinction that I fail to make. I could plausibly see men not realizing that there was a distinction between ergative and absolutive, it's- Ah, it's all the same thing. It's all the same on you. <laughs> Even so, I have to believe that this one is false because uh, there's just two there's just there are too many problems with this. First, if they didn't distinguish between ergative and absolutive, you would have to assume then that there would be some other way to, to figure out who is doing what to whom. And if this is a Caucasian language, don't most of those guys have SOV word order? Uh, I mean, you really don't see a lot of SOV languages that have absolutely no case marking on the nouns. Uh, Anyway, to to separate them. But also, the first thing that occurs to me is that none of these languages that I know of are completely ergative. They're all split ergative in some, you know, kind of weird, you know, halfway kind of way. And it is a trick on linguists, uh, but it's a trick that linguists play on conlangers. They're trying to lure us in into linguistics. They say, oh, look at this fantastic. <laughs> language, it's an ergative language. And I'm like, Really? <laughs> Well, only if you're talking about the perfect tense. But but yes, it's it's ergative. Uh, I, I'm totally sure for like 5% of the phrases you say in, you know, in the course see, of daily see, that's life. that's what I'm saying.
4: Yeah. That's no, no, what no. I'm saying. There aren't any ergative languages. No.
0: That's what I came to learn, you know, the, the I, the jaded one. So no, I'm going to put my foot down and say against all of you who said something different that uh, three is the false <laughs> one, right?
2: Okay. Sorry, I fell asleep there for a moment. Um... <laughs> So I guess this was a clean sweep. The bit about the absolute interrogative cases in Andi, the Caucasian language, is in fact true.
3: Ah, what? Goodness. Yep. Yeah. You're making it up, Trey. You're making no, it up? No, I did not make it I would point out that what is probably actually going on is that men are making the distinction, but they're using homophonous case
2: markers. Ah, yeah. <laughs> Let me uh, rephrase that. That one actually came <laughs> from a source. I didn't make that up. Okay. <laughs> That's the what definition. kind of a source are you... Was it on the internet? Did I write
1: Wikipedia? it? Wikipedia. Was it Wikipedia? No, That's it actually, what it is. It actually, I just edited that.
2: It came out of a book, an actual print book. Oh. You guys were pretty much right about the island carib. What happened was the carib invaders came and killed all the Arawak men and then moved in. Oh, I heard about that. In Ringu, the Reduplication and I just made that up.
0: Okay, I would have guessed that one, but uh, that third one just sounded too implausible. I, I, I want to know more about this language. Can you mail us, can can you purchase us a new copy of this book that you got this out of and mail it to each of us so that we can review the facts ourselves?
2: I think that was the entire content from the book about this particular language.
0: No, that's fine. I i, I don't make any, any complaints. Please do ship it first class if there's such a <laughs> Really though? Really? Yep. Did it give an example?
2: No. No, sorry. They no. never do. Of course they don't. No, no I. Like, that would, you'd really believe that anymore, right? If somebody's going to make up this fact, how hard would it be to make up data to go with it?
0: Uh, I suppose that's right. All right. I mean,
2: you're a conlanger, you make up data all the time.
0: Ah, oh, yes, I do. Yes, I do. I, I made up this one Caucasian language called Andy. <laughs>
3: <laughs> the real kicker is that in Andy, the men use carob vocabulary
0: <laughs>
1: so. and
0: Ringu syntax. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, brother. Maybe that was it. Maybe the case marker is actually a reduplication, and the men just refuse to do it. Uh, no, that's silly. We will not do that.
4: So, Trey, how are this doing against the regulars here? Yeah, that's
2: true. Sherry, you have totally let down the guest team.
1: Yeah, well.
2: <laughs> First time ever that the guest didn't get it right. <sighs> <laughs> so the guests are uh, two for three, oh. which is better than Keith, who's four for 11. Wait, <laughs> hey, yeah, yeah. And statistically, more, I don't less, know these more or less the same as Bill, who's seven out of 11. Better than David, who's six out of 11. So I guess actually you're tied for first, more or less. <laughs> <laughs> to, one, to two decimal places. Good enough. Well, in that case, good job.
0: All right, well,
1: yeah. yeah. Thanks.
0: Uh, thanks, Trey, for that, and thanks, uh, Sherry, for joining us for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. It was nice to have you. Uh, any parting shots for us?
1: Uh, I just—I'd like to say it was fun. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, fantastic I
1: mean, aren't you supposed to do aren't you supposed to do like they do on wait wait? Don't tell me where they where they you know where they make sure that you get the right answer so you get Carol castle's voice on your answering machine and all that. I'm disappointed <laughs> you to pay Not gracious that. hosting.
0: No right well thank you for joining us and uh, we're gonna take a break and after that we're gonna have some language news.
1: Language made difficult is of course sponsored by FridayNightLinguistics.org
0: okay we're back now for some language news in pseudo news vowels apparently control our brain and thereby our entire lives and thus the world blogger robert krulwick over at npr has discovered that back vowels tend to be associated with big semantic concepts and front vowels with itty bitty semantic concepts thus a word like cute with a back vowel represents something large and monstrous to our minds and bad with a front vowel represents something small and harmless that's about how that
2: works, right, Trey? Uh, no, that's not right, and that's not even wrong. <laughs> the article missed the proper generalization, which I expected you to pick up, which was that high it's high front vowels and low back vowels. And you've done a mix and match, which is exactly the kind of thing you expect from a typical unscrupulous linguist. <laughs> It turns out that someone actually answered this question three and a half centuries ago, and that was in 1665 when Isaac Newton said, the filling of a very deep flagon with a constant stream of beer or water sounds like the vowels in this order. And then he used some idiosyncratic transcription because it was the 17th century, and he was 12. (laughs) Some philologist braver than me has transcribed it roughly as W, O, U, -u O, A, -a E, and U. In short, it isn't sound symbolism, it's iconicity, which is completely different.
0: Okay, well, that's done. (laughs) Uh, Good old iconicity. But is it still controlling your brain? Mm. Is it conditioning? How you think? Well, personally, whenever I hear a steady, constant stream of water and or beer filling up a jug, my brain thinks it's time to go to the bathroom, so I think that's probably right. So, one of the things I found most interesting about this article was uh, this research done on cracker and ice cream names, which just sounded so completely bizarre to me what one of the things that uh, that i think they failed to take account for um is if you look at a lot of these names a lot of the names for crackers have the word cheese in them and a lot of the names for ice cream have the word chocolate in them and i think that the article is missing the real point since crackers are trying to be lightweight cracker makers combine crackers with high front vowel words like cheese to make them seem light whereas the opposite happens with ice cream makers The obvious conclusion to me is that if the word for chocolate were instead something like speech and the word for cheese were something like gloche, we'd have us some chocolate-flavored crackers and cheese-flavored ice cream.
2: Hmm. Um, I'm drooling. Sorry.
0: I think you're onto something there I'll tell you, this is a completely true anecdote When I was in Spain as a very young child Not for long, I was there for a couple of weeks I tried their milk, which came in boxes rather than cartons Or great big plastic gallons, which struck me as bizarre The girl there that I was staying with described their milk as the best And to me it tasted like liquid cheese I think if they go to Spain, they could actually market this cheese-flavored ice cream Hmm. and, and, And make some money
3: uh, one thing I was kind of curious about with this article, considering that people have been talking about iconicity like this in language for a while, I mean there's, I know Ken Gregerson was talking about some of this with idiophones back in the 80s, and I think there was some stuff in the 70s. Those discussions took into account also whether the tongue root was advanced or not, mm. right? Yeah. As far as when you're making large spaces in your mouth, or they're small spaces, is there any... Ad- Advanced tongue root cheese versus retracted tongue root cheese, because that would let us kind of test these. There could be cheese and there could be cheese,
0: right? Well, I'll tell you this right now. For me, ricotta is advanced tongue root cheese, because that thing gets anywhere near my mouth and my tongue shoots out.
2: <laughs> oh, just, just
0: awful. I, the smell of it, just even thinking of it, just uh, that's
2: uh, that's very plus ATR. I was thinking uh, something similar which was based on what Bill said about the size of the cavity in your mouth and that that may be predicting how much of something you want in your mouth at Mm. least for David with cheese you'd expect to be very small so there's not a lot of room in there and for chocolate it would be nice and big Oh, yeah exactly that
4: suggests that languages should have dialectal variants spread unpredictably across the population with different
3: vowels for the same food yeah I don't
2: think it's unpredictable necessarily unpredictable I mean there's always going to be idiolectic variation I mean there are only certain parts of the country we can go where somebody says, hey, head cheese is a good idea.
0: Oh, God. Did I ever tell you my story about head cheese? No. Oh yeah. Well, I, I, apparently. Uh, Wait. I, yes. Did I? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So, Several times. I, I don't know. So here's the thing. It wasn't. And, called and
3: that. I think it's important before we run out of time to bring up <laughs> Brussels sprouts <laughs> because they're not very popular. And boy, do you know sprouts that 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 has a fair amount of mouth
0: space to it. Uh, but bean sprouts. Oh, but then they have the bean in there, right? And that means good. Bean, right. Right, right, right. Oh, no, bean. bean means bad. Wait, what? Yeah. Okay. No, 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 no. But vocalically, bean means good. I think this is how we have to do this. We have to divide up the words into good and bad. And so obviously, you know, if it has an E in it, that means it's good. If it has an A in it, it mean, that means it's bad. And so chocolate ice cream is bad. So you want to leave that all for me because you don't want that. I want to try to keep it away from you, try to help you.
2: Thank you for taking a bullet for the team. You're welcome.
0: <laughs> uh, just a quick note. I was glad to see that my old phonetics professor. John O'Hall, I got a shout-out in this one. That was really nice to see. There was a particular comment in the comments section, which, first of all, at the face of it, I found amusing, because the comment begins, Well, I'm a trained opera singer. And I was like, Oh, really, internet commenter. <laughs> what they point out is that it's easier to hold uh, longer notes with um, kind of back low vowels as opposed to high front vowels. And I think that this can help to explain a lot of the singing Styles of especially the '90s popular '90s singers like uh, Eddie Vedder and, and the fellow from the Stone Temple Pilots, what's his name? Scott Weiland. That kind of became popular. And that other that awful band. What was that awful, awful, awful band that nobody ever likes? That rhymes with Creed. Uh, it was Creed. It was Creed. But if you ever hear them, he, listen to them singing, especially the high front vowels. All of them back a little bit. That is, they become centralized. You know, like. The that song, Even Flow, it's not Even Flow, it's Even Flow, and with that er, it doesn't even sound like an E, and if you hear it, it sounds very distinctive, and I always thought this was just because they were either lazy or from someplace where Bill was from, you know, maybe it was just, uh, I don't know, to make things a little bit easier to hold the note.
3: Uh, I think it's just an attempt at a plus grunge feature on the solo
0: ball. Oh, yeah. Is that how they were realizing yeah. it back then? Uh, I yeah. figured that stuff was just produced by synthesizer.
2: Ooh. Ooh.
0: There was probably no vocal apparatus involved. You guys know that Eddie Vetter is a regular listener to this podcast. Not anymore. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Keith.
4: <laughs> I didn't know we had any regular listeners. <laughs>
0: Yeah, honestly, not even me. Oh, but anyway, it's always a pleasure to discuss wildly informative and orgasmically accurate articles like this one. So, uh, a big thank you to Robert Krolwick of NPR. You have some new fans. Uh, anyway, uh, moving on. It's time for another bizarre experiment that apparently tells us something important about language. In this one, adults, older children, and toddlers were recorded saying the word "bad." A recording of this word was then played to them repeatedly as they were asked to say the word bed. Adults and older children found this task to be quite confusing, and the sound of their voice repeating the word bad forced them to alter their pronunciation of bed. For people that are having a hard time following this, think of that trick where you try to pat your head and rub your belly at the same time. And if you've never heard of that trick, I encourage you to try it right now and see what happens. Anyway, though, so yes, the older children and adults couldn't do this. Toddlers, though, had absolutely no problems whatsoever. They just kept saying bed the way they normally do while hearing themselves say bad. It was like, you know, basically they weren't uh, hearing anything at all. Since the toddlers weren't, in fact, deaf, uh, they could actually hear this stuff, then I think we're forced to conclude that the toddlers were, in fact, stupid. True or false, Keith? False.
4: The claim that the author made here was that toddlers don't listen to their own voices to correct their speech so the sound of their own voice didn't affect their production speech now I think there's a standard explanation for this at least in acquisition theory, and that is that two-year-olds have no affective filter Mm -hmm. but that's not the proper explanation that's just the one that has been published the proper explanation is that toddlers are still in the process of setting the parameter known as listen to adults (laughs) and it's set at uh, yes at birth so toddlers and very small children are going to listen to adults and not themselves but at around age three, after they learn that no as an answer doesn't work for everything, then they change it to not too often uh, listen to adults. And then finally, sometime after that, they learn, maybe around adolescence, that the parameter is set to never listen to
0: adults. <laughs> That's not a binary parameter, though. Chomsky will be angry. No, it isn't. It isn't. That may have
4: theoretical implications.
0: <laughs> but uh, speaking of Chomsky, does this yet again prove Chomsky wrong, or does he get a pass on this one? I mean, after all, if they're not listening to their own voices, they are relying primarily on external input to change the their own speech. I mean, uh, that pretty much defeats the entire concept of universal grammar, right?
3: Well, this is just a pronunciation issue. Uh, Okay. And they also did not control for the extent to which the speakers had deadened their own perceptual responses with amplitude. (laughs) So, when, when you have the adult say something over and over again, the adult typically says it in a fairly neutral tone of voice. Well, the the toddler is usually enthusiastically screaming it when the toddler's cooperating with the experiment because otherwise you don't get data, right? They're either yelling or they're just not saying anything. <laughs> For the measurement circumstances, we've got a situation in which the kid has been emitting this high pitched, incredibly loud vocal barrage to cooperate and thereby deadened their own hearing. So, of course, they don't hear themselves talk. They're not hearing anything, really.
2: (laughs) I think you guys have missed an important generalization here, which is that you definitely say toddlers aren't stupid. What they are is they're egomaniacal and oblivious. (laughs) That's
1: I what
2: I said. <laughs> and I, Well, all right. So. So,
3: so what you're saying is we should repeat the experiment with university administrators.
2: <laughs> for example. Because
3: that would predict uh, equivalent performance.
2: Or Noam Chomsky. Yeah, exactly. Ooh. Except the difference is for toddlers, from a psychological point of view, this is developmentally appropriate. And so you could say that, that toddlers are developmentally appropriately stupid.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I have something personal to share with this, and maybe this is... It's just me misunderstanding the term toddler, but, um, what it doesn't involve head cheese. does No, it? no, okay, that, yeah. that story will come later. When I was four, I distinctly remember listening rather attentively to my own voice all the time. I just loved it. I would actually go to people and talk, not to them, but I wanted them to hear my voice the way that I heard it, because I thought it was so wonderful. I thought, you know, I would do something nice for them and let them hear a wonderful voice like mine. Does my personal experience then completely invalidate this study?
2: No, it, it actually fits with it and shows that you were developmentally delayed by two years, I think, um, because it was- It was the two to three-year-olds who had the problem of not paying attention to their own voice. And again, it was about not that they didn't hear their own voice, but they didn't listen to their own voice and use it to correct it. In fact, they loved it so much. They were just perfectly fine with whatever came out of it, (laughs) much like you are then and now.
0: Uh,
3: In fact, listening to your own voice could prevent you from listening to parents' voices, thus, cueing you to try to make up languages instead of learning the ones that you're being exposed to.
0: (laughs) It is easier. But personally, I thought that this conclusion they drew, it was, I'm not, I'm just not 100% satisfied that the results that they got or the experiment they set up actually supports their conclusion. I mean, listening to your voice on headphones isn't the same as listening to yourself as you speak. At least, uh, to me, that's something that's really hard to kind of reproduce in an experimental setting. Okay, in order to do this the most naturally, in order to do this in a way that it absolutely had to work, first of all, they should not have been able to hear their own voice at all, no matter how loudly they spoke. In order for that to work, They would have to have the word bad, which is the one they were hearing in their heads. They would have to hear it pronounced at exactly the same moment that they were opening their own mouths to pronounce bed. Or however long the delay is between when sound comes out of our mouth and gets to our ear. That's how short the delay must be in order for this experiment to work. I gather that what they actually heard was just, you know, uh, you know a toddler said the word bad once and then, you know, was sitting there, Bad, bad. And then they were, you know, some experimenter was trying to yell at them so that they could hear it say that, say that, and pointing to a bed or something or a picture of a bed. I am not satisfied that that perfectly replicates real life experience.
2: Apparently, no one wants to disagree. No
0: no one wants to disagree. Uh, Uh, I'm just
3: trying to wrap my brain around the idea of an experimental paradigm that fails to exactly replicate everyday experience.
0: <clears throat> that would be unprecedented. <laughs> I suppose then folks like me will have to live our lives never being satisfied. And if I may ask, why on earth did we decide to plant the Specram headquarters right next to an airport?
3: They built the airport after we set up because of we were bringing all the
0: business in. I guess that's right. I, 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 it's, this building has been here since... Uh, when was it built? Was it... Uh, 22 BC or before? We don't talk about that because it affects tax rates. Oh, yes, yes, of course. Yeah. You don't want yeah. the controller back on the show again. Oh, dear.
3: The exact age of the building is an uncollapsed probability function, and we like it that way.
2: <laughs> that is the best kind.
0: All right. Well, anyway, guys, if you're interested in having your own toddler to experiment on, they can be purchased in the Specgram gift store for 9.95 plus sales tax and a um, 28 convenience fee. Uh, we've got a new segment coming up, but first... First, a word from our sponsor.
1: Language Made Difficult is underwritten by an overly generous grant from the Office of the Controller General
0: of Specgram. I'm watching you, word nerds. Now it's time for a brand new segment we like to call Futurological Linguistics. As professional linguisticators, we have the ability to look into the future and see precisely how language will change over the coming centuries. Hint, if you're fond of the word hipster, prepare to be disappointed. In this segment, we shall reveal to you some of the wonders that the future holds for the English language. First up, linguisticator Bill.
3: Yes, I predict that by 2172, roughly around March 18th, the language of educational administrators will have become so divergent from that of the rest of the population that it will in fact constitute its own language, primarily making use of the terms leadership and excellence in various ways. (laughs) It will achieve this by sundering the expected tie between words and actual meanings so that they will be free from any last vestiges of content of those terms. (laughs)
4: Will this involve grammatical change also so that leadership functions as both a noun and a verb?
2: They
3: have already stopped paying attention to that. Yeah. Mm.
2: (laughs) I believe that followed shortly after that, professional linguists will decide that it is no longer true that all languages are equivalent and equal of equal value. (laughs) Oh, boy. You really leadership that, Trey. Way to exalate. Thank you. Uh. I have my own prediction, which is uh, that there will be a sort of apathy-induced spelling change brought about by email and texting and that kind of stuff, and we'll see not only that it will occur, but that it will be accepted as reasonable and correct for there, there, and there to all be in uh, free variation. Your and your, with and without the apostrophe and the E. Uh, we'll also be in free a- variation. Affect with an A and effect with an E will be in free variation. And the prescriptivists will just give up and won't care anymore. Green grocers apostrophes will become decorative, like putting hearts on and dotting the letter I with up to five <laughs> per word in common usage among teenage girls. All double letters will become optional. Any letter can be doubled. So pastime can be spelled with two S's, two T's. Vacuum could have... Two C's, two U's, two C's and two U's. I think doubled letters may even become a super segmental feature of the written word. And so bookkeeper could be spelled with two B's, three O's, four K's, five E's and six P's. (laughs) Um, A lot will become one word. The uh, word endings to A-N-C-E and E-N-C-E and A-N-T and E-N-T and I-B-L-E and A-B-L-E will all just merge. And then with the, the, the high-speed typing that goes on, the spellings of common words will become completely flexible. And so F-O could be of or for. <laughs> A-D-N and N-A-D could be and. And then my favorite is that the word the will be recognized as any sequence of the four characters T-H-E and space <laughs> in any order. <laughs> So the to the could be spelled t o space h t e, or it could be spelled t o t space h e, or even t o h t e space space. All that would be fine. <laughs> I have seen the future; it is true.
0: So uh, it was my impression, though, that we were making predictions about you know the future, not describing the world as it is today. <laughs>
2: i <laughs> uh, totally acceptable to prescriptivists.
0: Ooh. Oh, boy. So what you're really predicting is the death of prescriptivists. Mm, I like that idea. And of
2: prescriptivism.
4: <laughs> but that's not a prediction about language. That's a prediction about um, society. I have a prediction about language, which is also a little bit like Trays, It's um, orthography-related. I'm predicting that, and this is based on uh, typology, looking at the world's languages, I'm predicting that punctuation in particular commas and periods, will become pronounced and then be uh, phonologically reduced to become clause-final particles, and this will render intonation unnecessary. I'm speaking only about English here. So now I can't exactly pronounce what this would be like, but it would be a little bit like comma becomes pronounced as, well, first comma. When you get to a pause, when you get to a (laughs) a continuing intonation, you'd say comma, and then that could be reduced to ka, probably. Once you have a continuing intonation particle like that, you don't need intonation anymore. And intonation can be freed up to be used
0: for something else, which David can predict for us. (laughs) Oh, boy. I I wish I could predict something for intonation. But what I have done is I have looked into the future, and I have seen, actually, that the way that we do tenses is going to change. This is how it works. Mm. We're going to have, basically, pronouns that inflect for tense... Mm. And we're going to combine them with two non-finite verb particles. And that will be the only way that verbs inflect. So verbs will have some version of the ing, which will probably end in in. And then it's just regular non-finite form. And then the, the pronouns instead will change. So present, we have I'm going, past, I go, future, I'm going to go. Here's how I, I envision it will work. All right, I, I, I'll give this a try. i may screw up. Uh, yesterday I go to the store and I'm seeing this new electric cardigan and I say, how much is that? And he say, 20 credits. And I say, I'm gonna give you 40. And he say, I'm gonna hit you back 20. And I get on up out of there. There you go. <laughs> it works. And you know what? Pretty realistic. Pretty realistic. And, and I predict that this could possibly happen and completely alter the way that English works within the next, uh, 30 minutes to 30 years.
2: Give or take <laughs> two hours. Think about that, give or take two hours. So what you're saying is it could have actually happened an hour and a half ago.
0: It could have happened an hour and a half ago, and we are already behind the times. So Language change is frustrating, the way it just keeps overtaking you. I know. I, I, I wish we could all be like Icelandic, which I'm told by sources hasn't changed since the original all thing was invented.
2: I believe that is correct, uh, according to my sources. Yes.
0: Ah, uh, sources say yes. All right. Well, now we must cover up the crystal ball and leave more till later. By the way, you, the listener, now owe us each $500. All right. That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we shall sentence the voiceless velar nasal to death. Thanks for listening.
1: You're not you're not naked or anything, are you? Because if that's I didn't think it was this kind of show.
4: Spare the duct tape. Spoil the job. Duct tape sparen. Nice. Don't try to joke with Trey. He's just not in the mood for it.
2: Are you licking the microphone again?
1: It was a flamethrower. I don't I like. think it was
2: a ton Wait a minute. Applied
4: syntax, did you say? Yeah. Yeah,
1: what, what does what that I mean.
2: mean? You take a syntax book and you hit somebody in the head with it.
1: I'm, I'm in charge of instilling all the nerd in them that I can squeeze in.
0: I'm extremely excited. Okay, now everybody tell me what this is. Da,
2: da, da, da. Horrible. <laughs> was that right? Here we go. In
0: 1918.
2: I will kill you. <laughs> Since you, you didn't go last, I couldn't give you any hints because it's absolutely imperative that David not get them right.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I was about to say professional.
0: All, all you people sound alike to me.
4: You mean you guys didn't know what you were talking about?
0: <laughs> uh, a little bit, a little bit.
1: No. Yeah. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs>